Well, good morning. morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 this morning, so it'd be helpful if you turn there. We'll have the words up on the screen, but it's always good to have it in your hands. As you're turning to Genesis, uh, if you haven't been with us uh, for a while, then then this may be new to you, but uh, what we're doing, what we always do as a church is we try to preach through whole books of the Bible. So chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we want to preach a whole book of the Bible. Well, several months ago, we started the book of Genesis, and then after we got through chapters 1 through 11, we took a break and we shifted gears to consider the book of Matthew, and so we started going verse by verse through the book of Matthew. Well, we got to a good stopping point in Matthew, and now we're going to come back to Genesis, and that's going to be kind of our rhythm for the rest of 2022, is we're going to be studying all of Genesis and all of Matthew, the first book in the Old Testament, the first book in the New Testament, and so we'll find strategic moments to switch back and forth, and so today we are coming back to the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 12. And since it's been a while since we studied the book of Genesis, it would be uh, helpful to remember what we covered in this book so far. So in chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis, we said that that all holds together like a a single unit. It's really kind of the prologue or the introduction to the book of Genesis. You could say it's the beginning of the book of Genesis. Beginnings. So chapters 1 through 11 are very important. In chapters 1 and 2, this is the creation account. So this is when God creates uh, the whole world. He speaks by the word of his mouth into chaos and darkness, and he makes everything that is. And in that, he made mankind. He made a family. He spoke a family into existence, Adam and Eve. And when he makes mankind, when he makes this family, he makes them in a special relationship with himself. They are to dwell together in this special place. They are to have an intimate relationship with one another. And as part of this relationship, God blesses this family. He makes incredible promises to them and says that if they will have faith and obey him, they will be even more blessed, that God is blessing this family. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve uh, choose rather than to have faith to to not believe in God, to not obey God. They sin against God, they rebel against God, and so instead of blessing from God, what they receive is a curse, the curse of sin, the curse of the fall that works its way out into all of creation. But because God's desire is still to have a relationship with mankind, to have a special intimate relationship, he, he enters back in and he makes new promises to this family. He promises especially that that a child, the seed of this woman, of Eve, is going to crush the head of the serpent that tempted them into sin in the first place. And so that right there is really the tension that has worked its way out for the rest of the book of Genesis. It's one, this tension of the increasing effects of that curse through the world, the curse of sin and the fall as it spreads through the whole world. Things get worse and worse, and yet at the same time, we see these glimpses of God working through the seed of the woman to bring about this plan to redeem and restore and fix and bless everything that went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. So that was really all that we covered in chapters 1 through 11, this, this tension of the, sin, the curse of sin and the promise of blessing and redemption in the seed of the woman. Well, that came all the way to chapter 11. We finished at chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the famous Tower of Babel, or we said it's really the Tower of Babylon. And it was there that really the story reaches this low point in the narrative. It's there where mankind's disobedience and rebellion and unbelief reaches its peak. Because remember, they tried to build this tower, so what? That they could make a name for themselves. And so as punishment there, God divided all the families of the earth. He dispersed them over 
the face of the earth. And that was really where we left off in chapter 11, this low point in the story. Well, now as we come to chapter 12, we get the big turn. We get the, we get the moment where things start getting better. And really from this point on through the rest of the Bible, this is where things get really, really good. So we're going to look at this whole chapter, chapter 12, this morning. But as we're going to see it, it's actually two stories together, two journeys. And so that's going to be our outline is we're going to consider each of these journeys in turn. They're very different from each other. And usually we'll just read the whole chapter at once, but I'm going to break it up. So I'm just going to read this first part. This is verses 1 through 9 of chapter 12. And this is the journey of faith. So let me read these verses. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had acquired and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So this is God's word. And as far as the book of Genesis is concerned, that section that I just read, well, it really, the section began all the way back in chapter 11, verse 27. If you looked there, you can see that it's where Moses records the generations of Terah. If you were with us in the study of Genesis, every time you see that phrase, these are the generations, that's a section heading in the book of Genesis. So back when we look at the line of Terah, we saw that Terah was in the line of Shem, the son of Noah. So these are Semites. And Terah was in the line of Eber. So these are Hebrews. Do you remember this? So this is the family, the chosen line that we're talking about. But verse 28 of chapter 11 says that this family, the family of Terah, lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. So this was in Mesopotamia. So it's near Babylon. This is modern day Iraq. And in chapter 11, verse 27, it says, Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. It goes on to say, Abram's wife's name was Sarai. Now, Abram and Sarai are going to be important characters. They'll also be called Abraham and Sarah as the story goes on, just so none of us are confused. But verse 30 of chapter 11, this is very noticeable. It says, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So if you don't know the story of the book of Genesis and you see this and it says Sarai is barren, you would think, okay, well, then that's it for this Abram guy. His line is over. His line is dead. There's no more story to be had here. But if you know who Abram and Sarai are, like the original audience of the book of Genesis did. If you know who this is, then you're getting excited right now because you know this means God's about to do something amazing. And that's what we see in chapter 12, starting in verse one, very abruptly. It says, now the Lord, this is Yahweh, 
said to Abram. This is the Lord. This is the creator God. This is the God that all the way back in chapter one created everything by the word of his mouth out of nothing. This is the God that has actually not spoken directly to any human since Noah, at least as far as the book of Genesis records it, that God has not spoken directly since he made the covenant with Noah all the way in chapter nine. But here, all of a sudden, as we turn to chapter 12, this God is speaking again. And we don't know, we don't know uh, if this is the first time that God has spoken to Abram. We don't know how God spoke to Abram. Maybe this was in a dream or maybe this was a voice from heaven. We actually don't even know exactly when this is happening in the story of Abram. There's a lot of details that Moses is not giving us as chapter 12 starts. And I think that's intentional because what do we have then here? We have Yahweh seemingly out of nothing speaking a word of blessing and creation. Does that sound familiar? This is what God is doing here. And what is he doing? He is establishing a new relationship, a new covenant. That's what we call these relationships that God makes, a new covenant with Abraham. This is what we will call the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, it's gonna be started here. We're gonna see it more fleshed out in chapter 15 and again in chapter 17, okay? But this right here, this is the beginning of something amazing. God establishing a covenant with this man, Abram. Trimper Longman, who's an Old Testament scholar, he says, one cannot overestimate the importance of these three verses, not only for the Abraham story and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but for the entire Bible, both Old and New Testaments. You cannot overestimate the importance of these three verses on the whole Bible, and I agree. This is very, very big, and so it's worth our time considering it closely. So verses one to three, you can see, are actually comprised of three elements, and the first is a command that God speaks to Abram. In verse one, he says, leave your country. Leave your country, leave your land, leave the place where you've been living. And he says, leave your kindred, leave your family, Leave your tribe, leave your community, leave your identity, leave your kindred. And then lastly, he says, leave your father's house. And a lot of scholars think what that means, it says leave your father's house, it means leave your inheritance. Leave the inheritance that you would have received, the blessing that you would have received from Terah, and leave the gods that your family worships. We know from the book of Joshua that Abram's family did not worship Yahweh. They worshiped other gods. And to leave the household would be to leave the household gods. And God is saying, leave all of that behind. Leave your land, leave your family, leave these false gods and come and worship me as the true God. Come and worship me and go where I tell you and you'll get something better. That's the second element in these verses. There's a command, but then there's promises. God makes amazing promises to Abram. He says, go to the land I will show you, the land of Canaan. And God says, I'm going to give it to you and to your offspring. He says that in verse seven. I'm going to give this land to your offspring. So he says, leave the land that you're in, but I'm gonna give you a new land. And he says, I'm going to give you a family. Leave the family that you have, leave your kindred, and I'm going to make a family out of you. 
And I'm not just gonna make you into a tribe, I'm gonna make you into a nation, a whole nation of tribes, 12 tribes. And he says, leave behind your father's house and your father's blessing and your father's gods and I will bless you and I will be your God and I will make your name great. And as we saw when we looked at Genesis 11, this is a really cool parallel to the Tower of Babel that they wanted to make a name for themselves. But here God comes to Abram and he says, no, I'm the one that makes names great and I will make your name great if you will leave what you have. So there's commands and there's promises, but then we get the third element in these three verses, the purpose. Why is God blessing Abram? Verse two, he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is an important part of this new relationship, this covenant that God is making with Abraham. It's that everyone who blesses Abraham gets blessed with Abraham. Everyone who honors Abraham, who gets right with Abraham, aligns themselves with Abraham, they get blessed by God. God's love pours out on them as well. And contrarily, everyone that is opposed to Abraham, everyone that curses Abraham, well, they have the judgment of God, the wrath of God poured out on them. But verse three, verse three is crucial to understanding why God is blessing Abram in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The ultimate purpose that God has with Abram and and this nation that's gonna come out of Abram, it's to bless the whole world. It's to bless the whole world, all the families of the earth. So right here when God makes this promise to Abraham, what he's saying is I am going to redeem and fix everything that's been going wrong for the last 11 chapters. In you, Abraham, I'm gonna fix that Tower of Babel stuff where all the families came from. I'm gonna bless all of them and bring them back together. In you, Abraham, in you, in the nation that will come from you. And in you, I'm gonna fix all of that stuff that went wrong in chapter three. I'm gonna bless the whole world. My plan for you, Abram, is to fix all of this that's been going wrong, to do just what I said I would do in chapter three, through the seed of the woman, crush the head of the serpent. It's happening through your line, Abram. I promise. Incredible promises. Incredible blessings that God is giving to Abram. But stop for a minute and think about it. Think about what God is asking Abram to give up. Think about what he is promising to give Abram. And think about how crazy all of this must seem. God says, leave your land and I'll give you a new land, this land of Canaan. But we see in verse six of our text, the land of Canaan is already occupied. It's filled with Canaanites. And I really doubt that they're just gonna give the land to Abram because God said so. But God says he's gonna give it to Abram. God says, leave your family and I'm gonna make you into a new family. I'm gonna give you offspring. But what did we see in chapter 11? Sarai's barren. And the text tells us Abraham is 75, and we know from later texts that that means Sarah, right now, is 65. How are they gonna have children? How are they gonna have a family? It's not possible. 
God says, leave the blessing of your household and I will bless you so much that you're gonna bless the whole world. Well, that seems a little too good to be true. So do just like a quick risk-reward analysis <laughs> on what God is speaking to Abram right now. Give up everything. Leave everything. All of this security, everything that you have right now, leave it all behind, and I'm gonna do something impossible for you. You could see Abram saying, yeah, I'm gonna just stay here and take my chances where I was. No, that's not what he does. What does Abram do? Verse four. Abram went. He went as the Lord had told him. The rest of this section, all the way up through verse nine, this is just Abram going in that faith and that obedience. He goes to the promised land and he just pitches his tent up and down the promised land. And while he's there, God meets him and reaffirms his promises. He says, all of this I'm gonna give to you. This is all going to be yours and your offspring. And while he's there, Abram builds these altars and he calls on the name of the Lord. He has forsaken his other gods. He has left everything behind. He is walking in faith in the promised land, waiting for God to fulfill what he said. That's the journey of faith. This is the journey of faith. To risk everything, to leave everything because you know you will gain so much more from God and that God is able to give you what he promises. So you trust God to fulfill what he said that he would do. This is faith, this is what Abram is doing. He's journeying in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, one says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Hebrews 11.8 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's a journey of faith that Abraham took. And note the emphasis in these verses is on Abram's faith, not his obedience. It's on his Faith. Abram did obey, but the author to the book of uh, the author of Hebrews says that it was his faith that came first. It says, "By faith, Abram obeyed." So Abraham's blessing isn't the result of his obedience; rather, his obedience is the result of his faith in God's ability to bless him. Let me say that again. Abram's blessing, Abram's being blessed, isn't the result of his obedience but his obedience is the result of his faith in God's ability to bless him. And that's all of us. That's the faith that in Genesis chapter 15 says is credited to him as righteousness. That's his faith that justifies him, makes him right with God. But the amazing thing here, this is just what has blown my mind as I've been studying this text this week, is that Abraham had this faith because what did he have to go on? Why was he so certain? Why was he so convicted that God was able to fulfill his promise? He had a voice in the dark telling him to leave everything behind and go into occupied enemy territory with his infertile wife and God was going to turn him into a great nation. And yet he believed. 
he believed. And I think in one way we just say that's just proof. If, there were, if you ever needed proof that faith itself is a gift of God. But then I just thought, oh, we Christians have such a better word. If that's all Abram had to go on, a voice in the dark, Peter says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We have a prophetic word Hebrews eleven thirteen says, Abram died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. He was still waiting for those promises to be fulfilled. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us Christians that in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God find their yes. We have Jesus. Abram had a voice in the dark. We have Jesus Christ confirming for us that God will complete his promises. And starting here in Genesis chapter 12, like I said, this is the turn. This is, this is just the trajectory of the whole rest of the Bible. You could say the whole rest of the Bible, one way, is God's slow, faithful commitment to fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The rest of the Bible is just God fulfilling these promises, this blessing to Abraham right here. And he does. He does fulfill his promises. Abraham and Sarah have a kid when they're like 100 this is Isaac, the child of promise. Isaac has a son, Jacob, whom God changes his name to Israel. He becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. They become a whole nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. And it's out of the nation of Israel that we get Moses and the law. It's out of the nation of Israel that we get the prophets. It's out of the nation of Israel that we get the kings and the line of David. It's out of the nation of Israel that we get Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is the true offspring of Abraham. Remember what Haley read for us this morning from Galatians chapter three. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, listen to this, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. It's all the families of the earth. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Faith. Same way that Abraham did. Galatians 3.29 says this, church, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Jesus died on the cross as a punishment for our sins. He suffered the curse of the law in our place and he rose again from the dead so that we could be justified, that we could be made right with God. And what Paul is saying is that if you are Christ's, if you are a Christian, if you have truly repented of your sins and believed in Jesus as your savior, then you receive God's blessings just like he promised to Abraham. Everything that he promised to Abraham, Christian, it's yours because you are an heir according to the same promise. Jesus died so that the blessing of Abraham could come to you, the blessing of Abraham. And if you haven't believed in Jesus, if you haven't believed in Jesus, God is calling you the same way he called Abram. This, right now, me preaching, opening up his word to you, this is God calling you. This is that voice calling out to you saying leave behind all that other stuff. Leave behind what you're holding on to right now. Leave your life behind, lose your life. 
and follow Jesus and you'll gain everything. You'll have everything and that's true. To follow Jesus may mean that you leave behind your family. May mean that you leave behind your success or your career. May mean that you leave behind your very home and you have to move. But God promises you in Christ that you will receive so much more. This is what we receive, church, the blessing of Abraham. That we would have a new relationship with God. In Christ, we have been brought into a new covenant, the new covenant that's better than the covenant with Abraham. A new covenant in Christ's blood so we can have a right relationship with God. If you believe in Jesus, you have a right relationship with God. Your sins are forgiven and you are justified. And even more than that, if following Jesus means you leave behind your family, well, you get a new relationship with everybody else in the church. That we're your family now. Okay? You, you might leave behind your old tribe, but you come into this great kingdom. And you get to spend time with all of us. We all get to love each other. We get to be a family together. And if you leave behind riches and success and career, if you even leave behind your land, well, we know that in the age to come, we are going to inherit the whole world. Romans 4 says this is what Abraham was really looking forward to, to to not just inherit a little strip of land in the Middle East, but to inherit the whole world. And that's what we get if we are in Christ because we inherit with Christ all of the blessings that God promised to Abraham. So we're gonna get the whole world and all of the riches that God has lavished on us and we're gonna live with him in a right relationship with him forever and ever just like it was gonna be all the way back in Genesis chapter one. That's what we get if you have believed in Jesus. The promises are yours. It's an amazing promise. And we don't see it yet. We don't have it yet. We greet it from afar, but it's true. It's true. And we have to just get this into our minds. We have to think on this. We have to dwell on this. We have to hope in this. And we have to teach this. I was, uh, we, we have a responsibility, parents, to teach this to our children. We have a responsibility to disciple our children in these truths, to tell them about the promises that God is holding out to them in Christ Jesus so that they would know and they would hope in it and they would journey by faith. That's our responsibility, parents. And so we try to do this. We try to really, one one of the things we try to do is seize these little moments in life where we can connect something that our kids are interested in with this hope of the gospel to just try and make it real for them. And it's really just as, as we're going, where you know, something happens, we wanna use that to point them to the gospel and point them, them to the hope of heaven. And I never really know with, with my kids what's working or not. But you just do it, right? You just, you just put it out there and, and you trust that God will, will give growth and help things uh, take root in there. And so the other day, I just asked uh, my daughter, who's five, I said, hey, what, what's gonna happen when Jesus comes back? What do you think's gonna happen when Jesus comes back? And she didn't even think about it, just very matter-of-factly, she said, oh, well, I'm gonna be a princess at the heaven party. <laughs> and I thought, that's the best end times theology I have ever heard. <laughs> and that's all of us. We're gonna reign with Christ. If our, if our father's the king, what's that make us? And we're gonna reign with him, we're gonna inherit all of his blessings, all of his riches, and we're going to be in this awesome feast with God forever and ever and ever. That's an amazing promise. And it's true, because in Christ Jesus, all of God's promises find their yes and amen. 
That's yours, Christian. That's the faith that Abraham journeyed in. And that's the faith that we journey in. And this would be a great place to stop the sermon right now. It'd be great for me to say, go out, journey in faith. Remember God's promises. We could, but we have to do this whole chapter. (laughs) And, And actually, I'm really glad that we do. I'm really glad that we do. I'm glad that we're looking at this together because because we need to. So open up chapter 12 again. And let me read the rest of this chapter. Beginning in verse 10. It says, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may well go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep Oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So you say, what happened, Abram? You were doing so good, this journey of faith, pitching your tents and worshiping God. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm so glad that these stories come right up next to each other because that's real life. That's real life. Faith's not always easy. Faith's not perfect. And I love that about the Bible. This is one of the reasons that I'm so convinced that this is the word of God. Because the people that wrote this didn't feel any need to whitewash over our heroes of the faith. Abram doubted. Abram feared. So this is our second point. This is the journey of fear. We had the journey of faith. Now we have the journey of fear. And, and again, it's very surprising to see that this would come so quickly on the tails of this journey into Canaan. But, but let's give this a little bit of context. Let's try to understand what might be going on here. First, we don't know how long Abram was journeying through Canaan in verses 1 through 9. We don't know how long he was there. We do know that from the time God first appeared to him until Isaac was actually born was 25 years. That's a long time. So he might have been sojourning in the land of Canaan, dwelling in tents for some time before this famine arises. And, and I know for me, if I'm being honest, if there's something that I really, really want from God and I'm asking for God to provide it and months go by, honestly, if weeks go, if days go by, that's excruciating. And I start wavering very quickly. So we don't know how long Abram was waiting for God to fulfill his promises, but he was waiting. We think of Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart 
sick. Abram went, very excited, very hopeful, waiting for these things to happen. And some time goes by. Maybe he starts thinking, okay, God, I, I trusted you. I left everything behind. And I came to this place. And I still see a lot of Canaanites. I'm still living in a tent. My wife is still barren. God, this, this does not quite feel like blessing. This does not feel like my best life now. And so maybe a little seed of doubt creeps into Abram's mind. Maybe God can't fulfill those promises. Maybe it was too good to be true. Or maybe God doesn't want to. Maybe I can't trust this God. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. And then it says a famine came. Verse 10. In fact, it says it was a severe famine. It was a severe famine. And I don't know if we can appreciate how scary that would be. By God's grace, we live in a place where food is abundant. I don't know, maybe somebody in here, you know that feeling of food insecurity, of not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. If that's you, by the way, please talk to us because we have food. We will give you food. But I still, I don't know that we can appreciate at this time what a famine would have felt like, not knowing if you'll be able to feed your family, not knowing if you'll be able to feed your your servants, not knowing if you'll be able to feed your animals, not knowing if you'll be able to feed yourself. A severe famine. And so Abram's left with a choice here. He's already had that seed of doubt in his mind and then something really bad happens. He starts suffering. He starts struggling and so he starts wondering, is this famine more dangerous to me than God is good and faithful to fulfill his promises? What should I fear more right now? Should I fear this famine or should I fear the Lord? And he fears the famine. And so he goes down to Egypt. And now you might be wondering, where are you getting any of this in the text? And that would be good to ask me that. But here's, here's where I, why I think this. Here's where this is coming from. First of all, there's no mention of God telling Abram to go to Egypt. It seems like in the text that it was Abram's decision to go down to Egypt on his own. He wasn't seeking God's counsel. He wasn't seeking God's advice. And really, throughout the rest of the Bible, especially in the Pentateuch, going back to Egypt is pretty much always a bad idea. Right? Think about who is reading this originally. The Israelites who were just rescued out of Egypt. So anytime somebody's going back to Egypt, that's a red flag. Right? But I think what is really telling, what really makes me think that Abram is walking in fear and not faith, is the altars. In verses one through nine, as Abram was sojourning through the land of Canaan, he was building altars. He was worshiping Yahweh. He was calling on the name of Yahweh. And then if you go to chapter 13, when Abram goes back into the promised land, what's the first thing he does? Verse four, he goes back to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. But this whole time he's in Egypt, no altars. No worship. It's like God has, or like Abram has put God behind his back. And he's going his own way for a while. He's doing his own thing. Because he doesn't trust that God has his good in mind. 
that he doesn't know if God can provide for him, and so he does the most foolish thing that any one of us could do, which is to try and be our own God and try and secure for ourselves the prosperity and the blessing and the security that we can only find from God. And so let me ask you this right now. If someone looked at the story of your life, would they see you right now in a season without altars? What are the altars in your life? Are they there? Now, of course, we don't, we don't worship at altars in the new covenant. Just to be really clear, don't go out and build an altar. But I think there's a parallel here. What Abram's doing in this season of his life is like a Christian who's just not been going to church for a while. She's not reading her Bible. He's not making any meaningful effort to be in relationship with other saints, to be in relationship with the pastors of his church in relationship with more mature saints that can provide wisdom and guidance. This is a Christian who, you know, is just really focused on work right now. Or school's crazy. Or they just have a lot of hobbies and entertainment that's taking up all of their time and there's really just not any time left in their life for God or Godward things. This is a person that can go whole days at a time without even thinking about God and then they feel that twinge of conviction like, oh yeah, God. No altars in your life. Let that be a warning to you. Because it's dangerous. It was for Abram. In Abram's case, this season of his life almost ruined everything. And that's the biggest reason that I know that this trip down to Egypt was not God's idea. Because in going down to Egypt, Abram jeopardized everything that God had promised to him. God had promised to Abram land, and Abram leaves it to go to Egypt. God had promised Abram blessing for worshiping him. And Abram doesn't even call on the name of the Lord anymore. And God had promised Abram offspring. And Abram sells out the woman through whom that offspring was going to come. Abram almost ruined everything. It was like he was trying to undo God's promises in going down to Egypt. And I think the worst part about this story is how he treats Sarai. It's a little confusing for us exactly what Abram's concern is when he approaches Egypt. It says that Sarai is 65, and yet she's so beautiful that Abram's worried that people are going to kill him for her. And this has led some scholars to speculate that maybe that means Sarai was, you know, we'll say especially (laughs) well-preserved at 65. Could be. As I've thought about it, I think the confusion is more likely on our part that we only associate beauty with youthfulness and sexual desirability. And other cultures have a better definition of beauty. And I could preach a whole sermon about this, but I'm, I won't. I will say, husbands, if you've got a beautiful 65-year-old wife, you better cherish her. Because Abram didn't. It says Abram recognized her beauty. He says, he knows she's beautiful, but he didn't value her. He didn't cherish her, at least not more than himself. He's thinking about himself for my sake. 
do this. He tells her to lie. He concocts this scheme. If anyone asks, tell them that you're my sister, which is not technically a lie because she was his half-sister, which is weird to us, but okay in the Bible. But he tells her to lie. He knows what he's doing. He's trying to protect himself by putting his wife at risk. And things play out just like he thought it would. Pharaoh's men see Sarai. They praise her to Pharaoh. Pharaoh takes her and she's basically brought into his harem. And what's worse, Abraham gets rewarded for it. Verse 16, for Sarai's sake, Pharaoh, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. It's like he won the lottery. He stole his wife. And it's really hard for us in our modern context to, to even imagine a culture that would think of and treat women this way. I know that it's hard for us. And, and on one level, we, do, we need to be careful to not read our modern values onto people and cultures of the past. Okay, that's not gonna go well. Our modern virtues are built on their mistakes. Okay, so we can't look back on them and, and judge them over much. But, but on another level, I think it is right for us to read this story and say, this isn't right, because it isn't right. And God never says that it's right. And this is the important thing as you read this story, as, as we read this, this journey of fear. Abram is not presented to us as the hero of this story. This is what happens when you fear other things more than you fear the Lord. Abram is not the hero of this story. And that's really good news. Abram's not our hero. Abram's not Sarai's hero. Sarah is not hoping in her husband to save her. And it's not her husband who comes to the rescue. Who is it? It's God. Verse 17, okay? 10 through 16, there's not a single mention of God. Not a single mention of Yahweh. All the way, 10 through 16. This is just men acting according to their own devices. But then you get to verse 17, and what's it start with? But God but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Why? Because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Abram forsook God and he forsook his wife, but God did not forsake her. God didn't forget her. God didn't forget his plans for her. God didn't stop loving her and caring for her. So you wives in this room, And I know some of you live with husbands who do not cherish you. You live with husbands who have forsaken you. God will never forsake you. God will never forget you. God will never stop loving you. And God has a plan to rescue you in Jesus. Wait for him. He will rescue you just like he rescued Sarai. He rescued her miraculously. Do you see that? He sent plagues on Pharaoh and Pharaoh's house. And somehow, it doesn't tell us, somehow this clues Pharaoh into what's going on, that he has made a terrible mistake. He comes to Abram, he says, man, what, what's the deal? What were you thinking? Why did you, here's your wife, take her, go. And God rescues Sarai. Verse 13, one they go back up into the promised land. So do you see this as a little exodus? How cool is that? God's chosen people are trapped in Egypt and God sends plagues on the Pharaoh 
to bring them up into the promised land? God rescues Sarai. He remembers her and he saves her. But he also saves Abram. He also saves Abram. For all of his sin, for all of his fearfulness, for all of the ways that he was a terrible, lousy husband, God rescued him. And not only did God rescue him, but he brought him up out of Egypt with more material wealth than he had when he went down there. Why? Why would God do that to Abram? Because he said he would. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God promised that he would bless Abram. And nothing that Abram can do, despite his best efforts to ruin God's promises, nothing Abram can do will take that away. And that's true for us. If God has chosen you, and if he has promised to bless you in Jesus Christ, and you have responded in faith to that call, then nothing that you can do can take it away. Because it'd be easy for us to look at Abram and, and judge him for how awfully he acted in this story, but have you never hurt someone when you've been afraid? Have you never doubted God's provision for you and instead acted out in sin and in self-interest? Have you never done this yourself? And don't think Sarah is left off the hook. When we get to chapter 16, she screws up really bad too. But not only did Jesus die for your sins and my sins, but he died for Abram's sins and Sarah's sins so that God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled, that he would bless all the nations of the earth. And this is the point of this story. Abram's not presented to us as the hero. God is, and the truth that we hold on to is that if God has promised it, nothing can take it away. Not your sin, not your fear, not even all of those years that you spent without building altars in your life. All you have to do is repent. All you have to do is come back. God's promises are sure because of Jesus. In him, we find our yes and amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this truth that we, we know, despite all of our sin, that your promises are sure because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And so God, I pray that we would not fear other things, but we would just come back and remember your promises, that your promises are good. And Lord, that it's especially when we're struggling or suffering and afraid that we need to remember what you have said, that what is ours, that we are going to reign forever with you in the new heavens and the new earth, that that's the promised blessing that you made to Abraham that's gone out to the whole world. So God, help us to not sin in our fear, but help us to journey by faith and to wait to wait for you to fulfill your promises, to wait for that day where it all becomes true. God, help us to walk in the right relationship with you. Help us to walk in the right relationship with one another. Help us to worship you, to build those altars in our lives. And Lord, keep us. Keep us safe. Rescue us from our sin. Until Jesus comes again. In his name we pray, amen.